I spent a lot of time the last couple weeks thinking and contemplating, remembering, reminiscing as far as times around the table, especially as I was growing up. I mean, family time is definitely a really interesting time, and it's really just a great opportunity that I've taken just to spend some time thinking about those. Uh, Family and being around the table, especially supper time, was like the central time for us as a family for us to discuss anything the events of the day, anything else that happened, anything that we needed to, do, needed to know. So it, all that conversation often depended upon those things that were going on in our lives. I have an older sister and a younger brother, and if it was just us as a family, it was usually my dad who was the one that was taking care of like family business around the table. Anything he needed to discuss, anything he needed us to know um, is what we usually discussed. Um, we didn't have much input as children as we sat around the table uh, unless we were the one the discussion was about, and that was not a good thing. Uh, usually if uh, I was the center of the discussion around the table, uh, I was probably in some, on some level in a little bit of trouble here or there. Um, it was usually not a real positive thing to be the one that was being singled out, and so, like, what I found to be true was that the less I said in those kinds of discussions, the better off I would be in the end because, like, the less excuses I gave, the better off I was whenever dad was the one that was kind of, like, letting us know what was going on and what happened. And actually, one of the important things I remember is that dad's version of the truth was the only version of the truth that mattered. I also remember times where we would have company come to the house. My dad was a pastor, and often we would have missionaries or church members come, and they'd join us at the table for dinner. And there was a lot of preparation that went into getting ready for those times. Um, We had to uh, always be ready. We had to have dressed appropriately. We had to be clean. And there was one major rule that we had for those times around the table, and that was this. Children are to be seen and not heard. I don't know how many times we heard that growing up. And it sounds pretty bad, but it really wasn't as bad as what it may sound. It sounds a whole lot worse than what it was. But to be honest, we didn't really have too much of a problem keeping that rule except for my younger brother. He was the baby of the family. He was this cute little blonde-haired kid. And it seemed like whenever he spoke he could kind of get away with it. People just thought it was cute. People listened. Um, He got away with it. My sister and I, almost never. I've thought a lot about those experiences. Pastor Ken's comments the past couple weeks have been basically spot on. When he said that Jesus often used the table for subversive purposes, I find that to be so true. In fact, I guess my dad did the exact same thing whenever we came to the table from time to time. Sometimes there was an ulterior motive in having the people over that we had over. Sometimes it was just a way for him to be able to communicate. But there was always some ulterior motive, it seemed like. Um, The other thing that was true for us is that We were kind of like, Ken mentioned in one of the sermons that when you came to the table, you were kind of captive, a captive audience. You can't leave the table. 
Now, I know for me, there was no way for me or for any of us to leave the table without permission. Um, when we had company, that could often be an extremely long time. Um, and there were times, yeah, there were times where we were, could be excused early while the adults sat around and discussed. And what was really interesting is that sometimes while the adults were sitting there discussing stuff, we were the ones that were really interested in exactly what was going on. And we wanted to stay, but we were definitely excused. So I just remember just being around the table. And as we come to this whole concept of the table this morning, we come to a slightly different picture of the table than what we've discussed and we've looked at in the last couple weeks. Um, different people around the table than there was before. We're going to be in Luke 11, but before we get to the table scene, I want us to take a look at what was happening before this table scene, and then we'll get into exactly what Jesus was doing in that. So why don't we just bow in a word of prayer, and why don't we uh, get started this morning looking into God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather together. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the practical nature of it. I thank you for the personal nature of it. I thank you for the example that Jesus Christ gives us in the way that he meets with all kinds of people. But I thank you for the truth that comes out. And Lord, this morning, even though this is a little different than in past weeks, Lord, I just pray that you would allow this time to be productive in our lives, that we would be able to apply it in a way that would ultimately bring glory to your name. So allow us to focus our thoughts together. Allow me to communicate exactly what you would have me communicate. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together this morning be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The chapter begins with a great response to the, the disciples' question and request for Jesus to teach them how to pray. And we know that passage as the Lord's Prayer. And it would be fun to spend some time there uh, a little bit and talk a little bit about that. I love that passage, but we're not going to be able to do that today. After the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is there, and there's a group of people around, not just the disciples, and Jesus casts out a demon that had caused a man to be mute. And what was really interesting about that story isn't so much, so much that he cast out the demon, it's the fact the people that were there accused him of doing it through the power of Satan. And Jesus responds to them, and in a real powerful way. And it's one of those favorite stories of mine to see how Jesus treats people as they make those kinds of accusations. But once again, we can't necessarily go there. Other people, it's followed by the fact that other people in the process of all that are requesting him to perform a sign from heaven as if the things that he was saying and what was going on and all the different miracles that he had done and was doing weren't off of a sign. So it's a really interesting time period as Jesus is, is talking to people and as Jesus goes there. 
It's interesting to note that Luke records the motive whenever they ask for a sign by saying that they wanted to test him, that they wanted to uh, find out if there was a way for them to catch him doing something wrong. Um, It really amazes me regarding their unbelief. But we still have those views uh, prevalent today in our culture, in our society, that no matter what Jesus did, people can choose not to believe, or people can choose to try to find fault with it. There's a woman that speaks up that proclaims, blessed is the womb that bore you. And it's really interesting that as I read through some of the commentaries, as I read through the passage over and over again, it's really interesting to me that in reality, it's not necessarily saying a blessing on Mary as much as it was saying that that woman would have loved to have had a son like Jesus. Like that would have been amazing to have had an amazing son like that. And it, and it really is almost more, it really is more of a compliment to who Jesus was and what Jesus was able to accomplish than it was necessarily to Mary. But it's just this, all this interesting dialogue that goes back and forth. In the midst of it all, Jesus kind of like keeps reminding them uh, of the fact that no sign is going to be given that generation other than the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was in the days, in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, the Son of Man would be in the earth, three days and three nights. And this is this whole discussion, and it's, and it's this one chapter that goes on, and there's this great dialogue, and it all, one, all happens right after the other. Now, we don't have every word, we don't have everything that's being done or being said, but it brings us to a point that in the midst of that, or toward the end of that, we come to chapter 11, verses 36, 37 and 38. And it's in the, right here in the middle of this discussion that it, that it says this in verse 37 to 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, in reality, um, I just remember that the Pharisees, we've kind of talked about them before. Uh, Pastor Ken talked about how the fact that they were um, educated, but they were like the spiritual leaders. They were active people that followed the law. The word Pharisee literally means set apart. They set apart themselves to follow the law, to serve God, and to lead the people. And Pastor Ken said this, In one of his sermons, he said, it wasn't the Pharisees' righteousness that kept them from the table. It was their arrogance. And here they are now. They're at the table, but their arrogance still comes through. Now, uh, Jesus purposefully does not ritually wash. It's not that he's not washing his hands. It's not that he's not clean. And listen, I understand if, if... you were not to wash your hands before sitting down to eat a meal today in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of everything that was going on, I would begin to wonder a little bit about you. But the Pharisees were looking for Jesus to do a ritual washing, which was not commanded in the law. Uh, This is the response that Jesus has back to the Pharisee that noticed it. And notice Like, if you look at the passage, the Pharisee notices it, but doesn't necessarily say anything, but Jesus responds to him anyway. Verses 39 through 41. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed 
and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean to you. Um, Jesus is basically talking about their attitude as far as cleaning the outside and not necessarily the inside. Now, listen, I remember going back to those days when we had company over to the house. Um, we always had to clean our rooms. We always had to make sure everything was straightened up. Everything looked good. We had to help clean the house. The floor got scrubbed. The kitchen got cleaned. Bathrooms got scrubbed. The whole nine yards. Everything looked great. But there was kind of one rule. We really didn't want anybody looking in our closets. Um, I remember my mom shoving stuff in certain closets. Now, not the main ones that their coats might go into or anything else like that, but if there was anything out that we didn't know what to do with or didn't have a specific place, it went in the closet. This, the same thing, I think, was true for Amy's mom, but we're not going to go there into details on that one either. Um, sometimes it wasn't just us kids that kind of threw stuff in the closet, and but what Jesus is saying here is that what's really important is that when it comes to us as individuals, when it came to the Pharisees, it was just as important to be clean on the inside. In fact, it was more important to be clean on the inside than on the outside. In fact, he closes up that section by saying, if you get it clean on the inside, guess what? You'll be clean on the outside. And as Jesus says that, here he is sitting in a room on all sides of him are the Pharisees, and then as we're going to see, lawyers. These are not just, these are not his disciples. These are not any of the other people that are following him. This is not the lady that spoke up. This, this isn't anybody else, but the Pharisee invited him into the home, and it's a closed group from a perspective that there is this one group of people that's there, and Jesus takes this opportunity. Pastor Ken said it. We agree with it. Subversive. Um, in his, in his planning, uh, but Jesus takes this opportunity to address them, and he follows this with three what's called woes, three warnings for the Pharisees. The first is this, you tithe even to the mint leaves. Now, the Old Testament was pretty clear. The law was clear as far as what you had to tithe, and you did not have to tithe to that degree. The mint leaves are extremely small leaves. You didn't have to count every single one and give 10%. But the Pharisees were so legalistic, but so passionate about tithing that they went far beyond what the law said that they had to go. They went to an extreme. Now, I have to say this. I I think when it comes to tithing, I think there are, are probably a lot of churches and a lot of pastors that would kind of want people who extreme tithe in their churches. I mean, we would just say, come on over here. We'll take you in over here. If you're going to tithe to an extreme, by all means, come on in. We'll take good care of you. But it wasn't the tithing that was necessarily evil. It's what they didn't do. When we look at, at the verse where Jesus says this, he says this, you, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect justice and the love of God. 
Now, one of Amy's favorite verses is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Pretty familiar for some of us. But Micah 6, 8 says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. As Micah is writing this, he's not saying, well, and you need to tithe, and you need to do this, and he's not making this huge list. He's basically saying these three things. What does the Lord require of you? Uh, Similarly, in Amos 5, verses 21 through 24, Amos says, says this, and this is from God speaking. Amos is speaking as a prophet on behalf of God. It says this, I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-falling stream. Never failing stream. Um, I remember as a youth pastor, we went to a, a, youth, a youth convention where the kids went and one of the new songs that they introduced that had been written for the convention was taken from this passage here in Amos as far as let justice roll on like a river. Uh, justice is a huge topic in our, in our culture today. It's a huge discussion that we have. Um, in, our, in our culture, in our world, especially here in the Atlanta area. And there's all different kinds of justice that's being discussed. And we're being challenged to think about what we do and how we treat people. And is it just? Is it the right thing for us to do? And what's interesting is that while justice and the love of God is something that they neglected, It doesn't say not to tithe. You see, it's not an either-or proposition that Jesus is actually making here for the Pharisees. Jesus is basically saying that it's both. It's justice and tithing and obedience to the law. It's the righteousness and the love of God and the obedience to the law. He's not saying you choose one over the other, but Whenever you do one and you exclude the other, guess what? Jesus says, no, no. That's that's not the way it's supposed to be. Woe to you, Pharisees. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is really clear there in verse 42. You ought to have done these things, not neglecting the tithing and the counting and everything else. Uh, sec- the second woe, um, and we need to kind of like maybe speed up a little bit to get through these. You have an opportunity to, to read them for yourselves. But the second woe that he reads to the Pharisees is he says this, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Guess what? You want to draw attention to yourself and not point the attention at other people. You want people to notice you and not other people. And you know what? Like, I, I have to stop for a minute and 
I have to even ask myself, and I, I, need, I need to ask this of us, regarding the first, well, are we people that do the works of the law, so to speak, that are faithful in our works and our actions, as well as the justice and the love of God? Do we neglect the justice and the love of God like they did, thinking because what we're doing is okay? The second thing here is this. Do we point people to Jesus Christ, or do we point people to others, or do we want all the attention to ourselves? It's really easy for us to do that. The third one's really kind of interesting as well. The third woe is he mentions that they are like unmarked graves. Now, why would they mark the graves? Uh, another passage that they talk about, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. You kind of look good on the outside, but inside you're dead. That's not necessarily what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the fact that they're dead on the inside. But if they didn't mark the graves on the way to Jerusalem, the people walking there might walk over a grave of somebody or something if it wasn't marked. And if they walked over it, legally, according to the law, they were now unclean. Even if they didn't know it, they were unclean. So especially before the high holy days when people would go to Jerusalem, they would, they would mark the tombs. They would make sure that they did not cause people to be unclean. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is by your actions, you're actually causing people unknowingly to be unclean because you're like an unmarked grave. The other group of people sitting there are the lawyers, what we would sometimes call them the scribes, or we would call them the teachers of the law. They were kind of like the scholars of their day. They knew the law inside and out. They knew it perfectly. To the lawyers, he says, you create laws that you do not keep or help those who try to keep them. See, they went so far as to not just take the law, but they would add to the law lists Long list. It's amazing to see, and we could spend way too much time this morning talking about all the ways they added extra laws to the laws that were there. But here's, here's the really interesting thing. They made it almost impossible then to follow the laws. They made it so difficult that people could not follow it, and the people that were trying to follow it, they did nothing to help them follow. You're actually hindering them. The second thing he talks about, he talks about the consent, that, uh, your consent for your forefathers that it was good to murder the prophets of God. Uh, he talks about the fact that they built monuments and tombs for the prophets that their forefathers had killed, murdered. And in reality, what he's basically saying is you're kind of honoring the fact that they were murdered, that it was okay for them to be murdered by building these, you're your fathers were the ones that did it, and you're kind of like presenting this, this great structure, this monument, even though it's a monument to a prophet, but it's really honoring the fact that they were killed and that they take great pride in that. And he goes on to talk a little bit more about that. But the third thing I want us to notice is that he says that you keep people from the key to knowledge. You keep people from the word of God. Over and over again, especially in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, it talks about the knowledge of God's word, how God's word is the beginning of knowledge. And it's the knowledge of God's word that leads us into wisdom. And he, 
He's accusing these people who are experts in the law of actually keeping people from the word of God. They got so consumed in the finest points of the law and all these little things that they weren't in it. It's like telling people how you need to live your Christian life, but you never give them time or you never point them in the direction of reading God's word for themselves. And his response to all of this, as he says all of that, his response to them is truth. You know, I didn't always agree with my dad's version of the truth. But when it comes to Jesus' version of the truth, it is. After all, Jesus and John, as we were told, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And as Jesus points out these things, it wasn't very pleasant. You know, with Martha, as he kind of like told Martha that Mary had chosen the better thing, Pastor Ken reminded us that he was actually being extremely gentle. He's not necessarily being gentle here. He's kind of letting them have it. Um, He pulls no punches. He gets right to the heart of the matter. The truth is about this whole passage is, well, it seems like Jesus is being, is angry or is being extremely harsh. While I don't believe he's being gentle, I do believe his frustration, his brokenness of heart is coming through. I mean, these are the people that are leading other people. These are the people that have set themselves up as an example to others. These are the people that should be the ones that other people are looking at and says, yes, I want to be like that. And Jesus is actually heartbroken over this. We see over and over again at different times in the New Testament and the gospel accounts that Jesus weeps or Jesus mourns over the fact that the nation of Israel refuses to turn and the leaders, the religious leaders, refuse to turn to him scary thought that we at times could fall into that same trap. See, we could be the ones that cause Jesus' heart to break. We could be the ones that are so worried about our busyness and all the little details and making sure we cross all the T's and dot all the I's and making sure that we have everything in place of Listen, I grew up in a legalistic Christian society that basically said, this is what you could do, this is what you couldn't do. These are the things we did, these are the things we didn't do. And it was all spelled out. I wonder how much his heart was broken by that. And while we don't necessarily have the same rules, we still sometimes set up the tradition and the patterns that's based upon our view rather than pointing people to Scripture and what Scripture has to say. See, what's really interesting to me is Jesus spoke. um, It's really interesting that the Pharisees and the lawyers really had very little to say to him other than one. I mean, I skipped over verse 45, but verse 45 was really interesting. After Jesus addresses the Pharisees, he says, says in verse 45, one of the lawyers 
answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Like, yeah. Obvious, obvious statement there. But we come to this place, and as Jesus is heartbroken over what they're doing, verses 53 and 54 close out the chapter with this. As he, Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Listen, it was their forefathers that had murdered the prophets, and it's not that much longer after this that in essence they have Jesus murdered. They have Jesus killed. But our question this morning is this. Do we neglect justice and the love of God? Do we point people to Jesus? Or do we point people to ourselves? And the third thing that, that I think we need to ask, because I've been asking this of myself as I prepared, are we people who enter into God's word or do we hinder people from entering? Are we people that are going to actually point people to Jesus Christ and point people to Jesus Christ as it describes him in his word, not as a watered-down version or not as our opinion of what he's like, but are we going to actually point people to Jesus? I think there's a challenge for us this morning for us to take seriously the warning and Jesus doesn't waste time around the table. And this morning, as we've gathered together, Jesus isn't wasting time. His Holy Spirit has been convicting me. His Holy Spirit, I think, is convicting us to make sure that we don't follow that path or that pattern. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your great love once again. I thank you for the truth and the warning that's here. And Lord, while I do not think that we are guilty as the scribes or the lawyers and the Pharisees in that same way, we sometimes have those exact same tendencies that break your heart. And Lord, I just pray this morning that we would confess it and Lord, that we would repent from it, that we would turn from it and that we would allow people through our actions and through our speech to actually see and worship you. Lord, thanks for this time. We ask you would bless it we ask that your spirit would use it in a mighty way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.